I invite you please to appreciate Pastor Charity for leading us and also even for leading our missions and care ministry and we thank you Pastor Charity for the amazing work that you do there even making sure that together as a community of faith we are able to take care and to nurture even those who could be in any kind of need. Good afternoon church. Parents, I can see you around in this place. Um, do not worry, we, this Sunday and the coming Sundays, we have what we call family Sundays. Even for our children also to experience what happened in the big people's church. And also to give time for uh, the volunteers who serve diligently in the Rocker Kids Ministry. A time, you know, just a break, even to be able to rest. So please, um, do not worry, this is, you know, you, perhaps this time you may appreciate the work of the children's pastor and the staff and the volunteers therefore they do an amazing work right but we are happy to have our children here and we pray that indeed the lord will bless all of us today well today we start a two part series on the theme of christmas so today and next sunday just be talking about this you know this the birth of our messiah christ why he came and so if you may please turn with me to the book of matthew chapter 1 Right there, that's where we are going to come for, uh, for the next 40 or so minutes. You are there, right? Do not read anything. Do not read anything. Uh, chapter 1 has many people named there. Very, very many people. And so you may not be able to understand all of them. We read them together. So, but for now, we just put your finger there and do not close that page. Um, wherever we go, we come back to that page. In the Christian calendar of traditions, this season of Christmas, the four weeks pre uh, preceding the Christmas day, they are, they are called, you know, the Advent. You know, and Advent means, you know, simply, it's a fancy name that means coming, the coming of the Messiah. And so Christians do this to remind themselves of the coming of the long-awaited Messiah, that is our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, who had been promised you know, and so Advent reminds us that indeed our Savior, you know, the one that people had longed for and waited for long, you know, he came. But also Advent reminds us of something else, that this Savior, this Messiah who came, he will still come back again, his second coming. His first coming, he came as a baby, as a child, weak and frail, who needed the nursing you know, who was jeered by other people, but the second coming, he will come in all his glory, dominion, power, and authority, and also majesty. So he'll come back again. So our view of Christmas is twofold. We look back with a lot of gratitude that Christ came, but also we look forward with great hope again and great anticipation that indeed he will come back again. He will return. He'll come for his people. He'll come for his church. This week when we were preparing with the, you know, with the pastors here and we were trying to see where do we head or the direction that you know, this Sunday, the next two Sundays need to take, we were puzzled and also concerned, especially you know, um, that over the years, the real meaning of Christmas is either forgotten or misunderstood by us as a modern day believers. And many people do not know why we celebrate this season. We celebrate a tradition without 
meaning. And, you know, even traditionally people have been saying Merry Christmas. But have you realized that even for us pastors, we have forgotten sometimes that now we no longer say Merry Christmas. We say what? Happy holidays, right? You know, happy holidays. And that means that, you know, happy holidays, you know, is taking over from, you know, Merry Christmas and in a subtle way, we are actually forgetting the real meaning of Christmas. We celebrate Christmas many times without understanding really why should we celebrate this day? What's the meaning of Christmas? And many are unable to understand the hula baloo with the Christmas songs. Why should we even plan a bonfire? Why should we sing all these songs? Why should we set a whole worship set, you know, that we may be able to sing Christmas carols? To others, it is a time to relook and take stock of how we are faring economically. You know, we look at, you know, am I going to get a dividend at the end of the year? Am I going to get, you know, uh, a bonus at the end of the year? You know, am I going to get, you know, chama? You know, chama, the, you know, chamas, ladies, bonus if you, you know, chama, um, is there anything that I'm going to get this Christmas? A financial token, so to speak. Nothing wrong with that. But we must be careful that we are not forgetting actually, as believers, the real meaning of Christmas. And we should take again, uh, we should be charged again to remind even others why we celebrate Christmas, why we join together, we come together as a family of God to remember this season of Advent. What I'm trying to say is that Christmas story in our modern day has become obscured with the concerns of this life. Budgeting for Christmas, budgeting for holiday, and all those things, nothing wrong in them, but they have taken you know, the center stage instead of the real meaning of Christmas. I pray that we be able to remind ourselves, even as we break, as we go next week, we know that many of you will not be here, and rightly so, because also it's a time to celebrate together with families, that actually in all these celebrations, in all these travels, in booking the hotels and whatever else that we may have, in inviting people to come and celebrate Ambuzi, that actually we are not forgetting the real meaning of Christmas. Did Christ come so that we may be able to make a kill in sales? Many of you now, if you don't make a lot of sales during this season, you know that your January will be very, very harsh. You get because Christmas is a time that people are purchasing, you know, without even budgeting and all that. And, and, and so Christmas becomes, you know, a, a time that we look forward to increase our sales. But did Jesus come so that we may increase the sales? Is Christmas really just a time to take stock of our life and we monitor the progress? Is there anything else that we need to know about Christmas? And so I pray that in the next minutes or in the time together this afternoon, that indeed we'll be able to reflect on that and see, you know, why actually Jesus Christ came. I want to do that by reminding you of a traditional greeting that the people of Israel up to date use. For us, we say hi, salam, and all that. But for the people of you know, Israel, there is a Hebrew word that they say, you know, shalom, you know. And even some of us, you know, when we feel that we are deeply spiritual, we use this word, you know, shalom, you know. And you feel that person is really connected with God, you know, by using that word. Please use it, shalom, okay? Use it freely. Shalom, on the surface, it means peace. The Arabic equivalent of it is salam where you get Swahili, Salam, you get, that I wish you well, I wish you peace. But it also has a deeper meaning, a deeper biblical and theological meaning. It means 
order, tranquility, harmony, and peace. So if you're thinking about shalom, don't just think about peace. Don't just think about greeting. May it remind you of something else deeper, and that is harmony, tranquility, you know, and all that, and actually order. And if you're keen, when God created everything in the book of Genesis, in the creation narrative, you know, God created everything, the universe, the universe and the stars and animals and vegetations, and he created the cosmos and all that. And then he created the human race through Adam and Eve. God was looking at all this and he was saying, it is good. Everything is good. Everything is at peace. Everything is orderly. Everything is in harmony with each other. And you can easily say that actually the universe experienced a moment of shalom, a moment of peace, a moment of order. God and man, God will come to the man in the cool of the day, enjoying that peace. God and man enjoyed peace. Man and man, here generically, you know, Eve and her husband, Adam, they experienced that peace. Man and the ecosystem, to the extent that he would, you know, Adam would name the animals. You know, and, he, and the Bible says that whatever name he gave to every animal, that became its name. There is that order. There is agreement. There is harmony. Even when animals were given very weird names, like, you know, tortoise, you know, watok, you know, which other one is unique? Ostrich. You know, they are beautiful ones. They are beautiful names like rabbits. I think that's nice. But even, even imagine, the animals were given even some names there, and they accepted. There was harmony. There was tranquility. There was something that I could call shalom. Order, tranquility, and harmony. But this harmony, this shalom, was shattered because man sinned and rebelled against God and desired to live outside of the fellowship of that shalom, of that peace. And from there, everything became disorderly, Everything shattered, no more harmony between God and man because death came to break that relationship. They had issues, Adam and Eve. Adam blamed his wife, Eve. They haven't stopped since then, even to date. You know, they still blame the wives. There was disharmony even between man and the ecosystem. The flood narrative. God had to kill an animal to shield and to protect the shame of his children, Adam and Eve. An animal had to die. The animal kingdom no longer experiencing peace. The ecosystem going through moments on times of desert, of hunger, locusts coming, and all that. Man, the pinnacle of creation, even today, does not live in harmony with each other. There is that lack of shalom. We look into our world and we long for something. There is deep down in our hearts. We long for something. We long for this shalom. We long for it. We don't see it. And even when our loved ones have, you know, have, they have passed on, you know, we said rest in peace, praying that maybe this person will experience that peace that we have been looking for, that shalom that we have been longing and looking for. Even in marriages, now we have to help couples know how to navigate and how to find peace. 
in our premarital counseling classes and MSc, we talk about you know, conflict management. We want you to experience peace. You, know, you have to manage conflicts so that at least from one moment to another, you may be able to experience this moment of shalom. And when it's not there, people are in despair. But it is during this moment of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned that God instituted a plan to redeem man, a, pl a plan to be able to save this man who now the relationship has been cut. That God, even at that moment, was ready and willing to restore this relationship. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you know, God will say that you know, the woman's seed, the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man, the seed of the woman will crush sin's head. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And from there, God pronounced the good news that yes, this relationship has been severed, but there is hope something is going to come out of this, something good and something beautiful. The good news that the human race will be able to be redeemed, will overcome sin, and again, that moment of shalom, that moment of peace between the, crea uh, the created order and God will be restored. This is what redemption is. That God takes the delight to liberate that which has been enslaved. Because we became enslaved to sin, but God, even in that moment when he was frustrated by the outcome and the rebe you know, he was frustrated with our rebellion, even at that moment, God still takes delight to restore the relationship between the, you know, his people and himself. And out of that, then, we have the good news that, you know, Jesus will come back, you know, the, the promised Messiah, to come and try to mend that relationship, to bring that moment of shalom, that moment of peace. And Jesus Christ came, and he dwelt with us. He come, he come and experienced our life. There in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I think that's why we have the first message of Christmas. In that place when, just, when they had rebelled and they were being asked to leave the promised land, I mean the, 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 this, the paradise that is Eden, when they were asked to leave, that still they had this good hope that one day this relationship, this paradise will be restored again. During that time when God said that the seed of the woman will crush sin, that was the message of Christmas right in there, a message of hope. The fall, was, you know, the fall was losing a shalom, a moment of peace, and the final restoration will be a return of that peace. So the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 all through to the book of Revelation is an anticipation of the return of this shalom, the return of this peace, a perfect unity and tranquility. So the coming of the Messiah becomes then the most anticipated event in human history that all creation was waiting for. But the question is, how will this actually happen? Isaiah gives to us a glimpse, and maybe you can have that on the screen, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Bible says there, for to us a child is born. And this is a prophecy that has been made, you know, 700 years before the actual birth of the Messiah. For to us a child is born. And to us a child is given. You know, for to us a child is born, that meaning that, you know, this child will be able to be born through the natural process because he will become human. But also the unique thing is that to us a son is given. That means that that is the deity of Jesus, not just born, 
you know, he will be given to us, the begotten son of God. At one point, Christ will assume, you know, humanity through the lineage of Mary. And on this other side, he'll, um, you know, he, he, he will assume deity, which he has always had. The deity, the divine deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. For to us a child is born, that is a natural process. To us a son is given, the deity of Jesus, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then what? Prince of? That is Shalom. That he is the one who will bring that ultimate peace. That ultimate peace that all of us have longed for. Of the, all the prophecies, you know, of, of the OT, they were looking forward to. That he is the one who will be able to bring it. So the, the coming of the Messiah then becomes a signpost of hope. That something, as we look, you know, at how things are happening, and we say that things aren't the way they ought to be, then the coming of the Messiah becomes the signpost of hope. But the question was then, when will he ever show up? When will he ever come? The Old Testament, everyone was looking forward to the time that this Messiah shall come. But it ends with sort of a disappointment. It leaves the people, the Old Testament leaves the people in a sense of hopelessness and despair. If you have your Bible, if you just turn one page behind, you know, just to the left side, the last book there is Malachi. The Bible says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. So yes, as, as much as something good has been promised, you also left in a moment of despair. And when you turn your pages like that, the Bible was silent for over 400 years. Nothing was recorded. No prophecy was made. You know, no theophanies that would remind the people of God the constant presence of God. And so for 400 years, history was silent. History was silent. The people of God may have felt, you know, forgotten and alone. And then out of that, when you just flip your page like that, you flip 400 pages, and now, out of nowhere, muddy one happens. But not in the way that the people of Israel would have imagined. Not in the ways that they, had, they would have expected. He came as a baby, and he came also from a very faulty lineage. And all these people that we are going to read now, if you are in Matthew chapter 1, I see people who are very sinful, faulty, you know, having full humanity. As much as they tried to be good, they could not measure up to the holiness of God. I want to call all these people intruders of grace because they never felt the full grace of God. They were intruders in the story of genealogy of Christ. Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's stop there for a moment. The ancestry of, uh, of Jesus from Matthew, and Matthew actually was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a guy who was called by the Lord Jesus Christ to become one of his disciples. Actually, he's called Levi, you know, and he used to be a tax collector. And so he was hated. He was loathed by the people because he was a tax collector. You know, taxes, taxes, custom taxes, marriage taxes, every, you know, taxes everywhere. So he was hated by his people. 
And yet God calls him out. And he became a gift. Actually, that's what Matthew will mean. A gift. He became a gift to the people of God. He who was cast and hated because he accepted the call of Jesus Christ, he became actually a gift to the church. And today, we enjoy reading the, you know, his comments and his writings about Jesus Christ because indeed he became a gift to all of us. There's something that happens when Christ calls you out and you accept him. You no longer become that curse. You no longer become that hated person. You become a gift in the church of Christ, in the family, and anyone who has got the mark of Christ, you need to know that actually you are a gift to the people of God. So Matthew here, because he was a guy who would keep record very, very well. I mean, he needed to know who are not paying taxes. He needed to know who to send emails to, to remind them of their taxes. He needed to remind those who need to be fined. You know, he, so he was a guy who was keeping a good record of things. And so he narrates to us, in a majestic way, the lineage of Jesus Christ. So the ancestry is traced to David, and this is critical because the Old Testament speaks about the Messiah who will become, who will come from, you know, who will be a descendant of King David. Abraham and David, they were great men. On one side, Abraham received the covenant, the promise, you know, and on this other end, David became the great and the wonderful king of Israel. But also David was promised now that, you know, the, the, the throne will be under you. Your people will be able to assume this throne. And out of you, the righteous king, that is the Messiah, will come from your lineage. So these were great men. So as Matthew is uh, narrating this to his Jewish readers, then he, they knew that this is something special. Something coming from, someone coming from Abraham and someone coming from David, that's a very important person. And he was writing this because the Jewish people never believed, and even up to date, they don't believe that actually Messiah came because the one that they were waiting for came as a baby. Came as a baby not as the king of kings. Not with a sword to judge and to defend and to protect. He came as a child. That is not what they were waiting for. So Jesus is called again in the Bible, in the narration of Matthew, he's called the son of David that repeats itself more than any other part in the book in the books of the Bible of the New Testament, he is also called the son of Abraham. And this was important, as I have said, in the Jewish prophecy and in the Jewish history. So then Matthew labors to show us the legal lineage of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had an earthly mother, but he didn't have an earthly father in terms of DNA and all the, the chromosomes, right? I hope I'm pronouncing, pronouncing it right, chromosomes. All right, you get it? That's why even if you go down there, we'll see later, it says there, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Or, you know, when you read it, you know, so-and-so became the father of so-and-so, became the father of so-and-so. But Matthew says, you know, Joseph, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary. Let's see, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. So we start with a problem. Abraham was a man of great faith. He obeyed the Lord to the extent that he wanted to sacrifice his own son to obey God. But he had a lying problem. He lied to Pharaoh and to 
the, the other king called Abimelech, that actually his wife, Sarah, was his sister, so that he's not killed. There was a hostile takeover in those cultures. If someone was interested in someone's wife, you know what to do? Just kill. Kill the man, get the wife. That was a hostile takeover. So Abraham says, hey, I might go. You know, I might die. So they come, you know, he says, this girl is my sister. I don't know if I were to do that with my wife, Joan, if I'll have peace in the region. But anyway, he lied, not once, but twice. He was afraid of his life. He lied. Then Isaac, not much is told about Isaac. I mean, he was a guy who was there. Even a wife, he, you know, he had to do, guys had to organize how he's going to have a wife. Then from Isaac came the guy called Jacob. Jacob is something else. Actually, his name means deceiver. And he deceived his father. He deceived his brother. He deceived his uncle. You know, he deceived. Equally, he was equally deceived. And that was his name. Until God, you know, intervenes and gets hold of his heart and changes his name to Israel. Israel. The one who struggles with God. That was his name. And even in the modern day Israel, they still struggle with God. Christ didn't come. They're still having that spiritual struggle. Then out of this guy, Jacob, we, another guy shows up, the father of Judah. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was a very interesting character. The guy, you know, left his people, left his home, and went and married another lady on the other side, and they got some sons there. And these sons married, you know, one of them married a girl called Tamar. And Tamar, you know, you know her husband dies, you know, they, then God punishes the other brother and all that. And Judah didn't want to give the lastborn son because he thought, hey, if I give, you know, the, the first one has died, the secondborn has died, you know, through Tamar, hey, the thirdborn, watch out, let me, let, me, let me deceive this girl. And the story is longer than I can narrate. And what happened is Tamar, again, deceives her father-in-law and veils herself as a prostitute. And when the guy was just passing by there, he saw this girl, and they go and they do their thing. And after that, Tamar gets pregnant. And from Tamar came these guys who are called Perez and Zerah. So you can only imagine even from this lineage, I think that's messy again. Tamar, you know, sleeps with her father-in-law. And they get children. So you can only imagine Christmas, how that Christmas would look like. For Perez and Zerah, are you my father or my grandfather? Do you get it? You know, are you papa or babu? Are you baba or babu? All, all those things. This is the lineage, friends, of Jesus. And the Bible doesn't hide these guys. The Bible would have talked about other great people, but it opted to tell us about these guys. And if we are keen, we see the lineage of Jesus Christ. Then Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of, uh, of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And I think there, there, is, there is something there that we need to check, you know. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And, and you see, Rahab was, uh, Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. And when the spies were just about to take over the land, 
you know, in the book of Joshua, they go into this place, the, the spies, and they meet with Rahab, the prostitute. And they get into an agreement. And Rahab says, you know, yes, I am not a Jew. I'm a Gentile, but I know what God is doing. When you come back, save and preserve my family. You know, and so she ties the red cord, you know, a typology of the blood of Christ, and all those who have hidden themselves under the blood of Christ, they be saved. And when Jesus, I mean, when the Jews came, they gave her a place, and she got this guy called Simon. You could say a fishy guy, right? I know you may not get it now. Salmon, a fishy guy. Then we have Ruth somewhere. Ruth shows up. And Ruth was a Moabite. And Moabites, she was a Moabitess. And Moabites were people who were hated and detested because of their lineage. They used to be called the children of incest. And this is the thing, when you read in the account of Lot, you know, and Lot was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah, and when he left, even his wife, you know, was turned into a pillar of salt, and when they went to a place called, you know, they were running to a place called Zohar and all that, only Lot and his two daughters, and his two daughters realized, hey, we might be, you know, we might not have a lineage. So what they did is to give their father, Lot, some, uh, you know, some, some drink that had a very high alcoholic content, and they, you know, when he was drunk, they slept with their dad, and they got two guys. They got to uh, the firstborn got a guy called Moab, and this was the, you know, this the lineage of the Moabites. And then the secondborn, you know, got a guy called, you know, Ami, where we get the Ammonites from. And the Moabites and Ammonites became a thorn in the flesh in the life of the people of Israel. Then after that, we get David. David was a great king. He was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't a perfect man. He never brought that peace, that ultimate peace that the people of Israel were longing for. He coveted someone else's wife, that is Uriah the Hittite, and willingly and knowingly committed adultery, and then he committed murder. He coveted, he committed, and then he killed this is the guy who is called, you know, Jesus, the son of David. And he, you know, David here breaks three essential commandments at a go. He coveted, he committed adultery, and then he killed this guy so that he may be able to get the wife that is Bathsheba. Then after that, you know, from David and Bathsheba, they got a guy in verse 7 called Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And, you know, Solomon was someone else as well. He was a guy who had, you know, he was the wisest man who ever lived. But with all this, he made very bad decisions. For example, he married not just one or two, not even three, not ten friends, not a hundred women, not five hundred. Can you breathe? A thousand of them. So you can imagine even if he's spending time, it will take three years. You know, when he says good night, you'll see him in 2027. <laughs> right? The wisest man, but he was dumb in a way. Then out of that, Rehoboam comes, his son. And his son is celebrated as a guy who divided the kingdom, the people of God who had always been one. From Rehoboam, that's what happened. He divided the kingdom of his father. So Rehoboam became, becomes the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa, 
Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a good guy, was a very good king, helped the people even to love God more and to, um, and to worship him. But he formed a very unholy alliance with now the king of Israel. Now there was Judah and there was Israel and Israel had a king called Ahab and Ahab was married to a lady called Jezebel and she was, you know, these, these guys were corrupt, they were evil. So Jehoshaphat, a very good guy, made an alliance even giving his son to marry from Ahab's household. He was a good guy but not perfect, he made very wrong decisions. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, again, he was also a very good king. And God told him and sent the prophet Isaiah, by the way, put your house in order, you're about to die. And he faced to the wall and cried unto the Lord, and the Lord was pleased with his prayer, and he said, I have added you 15 more years. But as much as he was a good guy, his heart was full of pride. He showed the Babylonians the treasures of Judah, the gold and how, well they were, how wealthy they were. And after that, immediately after that, when the Babylonians saw that actually those guys are blessed, they went back and they waged war, and the guy, the, the, I mean, all the treasures of the land of Judah were, were taken by Babylonians. And so as much as he was a good guy, his heart was full of pride. But then out of that, he came with a, you know, out of that, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, shows up. And Manasseh was not a very good guy. Manasseh, he actually sacrificed his own son. He forgot about God. And Manasseh had a very good name. It was from, you know, Joseph. You may remember Joseph, the son of Jacob. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh actually means to forget, forget the pain. But this guy forgot about who God really was and turned the other way around and the kingdom of, you know, the kingdom of Judah, the people of Judah started worshiping or doing idol worship and sorcery. Then Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And again, Josiah was a good, but I mean, he wasn't perfect. His son, you know, Jeconiah, you know, God sent his prophet Jeremiah and, you know, and God said, now the lineage you know, the throne now has taken a different route. And Jeconiah, again, none of his offspring were able to assume the throne in Judah. You know, and after that, Jeconiah was only there for three months, and they were taken over by the Babylonians, and after that, he spent over 30 years in exile. So that is the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. After that, we have other guys there, you know, Zerubbabel, Abud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, and many other names there, you know, that we don't know much about them. I don't know if you have ever felt very, very significant in the house of God. These are guys who were just there, lounging. But they didn't know that actually the God was using them. Nothing is written about them, whether good or bad. They seemed so insignificant. But actually their names are there. And even if you try to research about all these names, you don't know much about them. Friends, Anyone who is in Christ, there is no one who is insignificant in the household of Christ. Though their names appear there in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. 
So if anyone ever asks you, and if you're doing Bible tri trivia, ask, who was the earthly grandpa of Jesus? You can say that he was called Jacob. Because from Jacob, we have Joseph, and then uh, from Joseph, I mean, who was the husband to Mary, you know, Christ shows up. The Bible continues saying that thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And this may seem, you know, we may not get actually what Matthew is writing here. You know, why, sh why should he add, you know, 14 generations from here to there, 14 generations, 14, why should he add actually that? For us, it may not make sense, but to the Jewish readers when they were reading this, that this was the son of Abraham, the son of David, and then they hear these 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations, it made sense to them. And let me tell you about it. In the Hebrew alphabet, uh, they do not have, you know, they, have, they do not have the alphabet letters as we do here, and also they do not have the numerals, one, two, three, four, five. And so what happens in their alphabet, they have given, if, for example, if it's uh, what we could call their A, they have, they call A, they can also refer it as one. You know, then they have another one, they have another one. When you read Psalm 119, you see the alphabets, the Jewish, the Hebrew alphabet there. So go and check out later. That's your assignment. You know, there is Aleph and all that, um, uh, 24 letters. And so what happens is that the name uh, David is written in what we could uh, transliterate as DVD, right? And D, in that, in the numerals, D has four, V has six, and D has four. So when you do four plus six is how? Is what? Four plus six? And uh, 10 plus 4, 14. So for the Jewish readers who are reading this and saying, this is the number of David, the great king. So that's why Matthew adds that there, 14, so that the people of God can remember, actually this is a promised Messiah through the lineage of David. This knowledge may not help you to go to heaven. God will not ask you, do you know what 14 generations, 14 generations, you know, and all that. But it may help you again to understand why Matthew was writing that one right there. Friends, this is it. The genealogy of Jesus didn't experience that shalom at all. The genealogy of Jesus had so many sinners. None of them was perfect. There were sexual abusers. There were liars. You know, and what we have read is a catalog of sins. Sexual sins, pride, murder, and all that. And if Jesus were to go for his Christmas party with his family, like many of you will do, this coming week. Who will be there? They will be murderers, liars, people who are full of pride. All those people will be there in this family gathering of Jesus Christ. And some of you are unable to go back to, you know, unable to join, unable to join your family because you know the sins that are there. Christ relates with you. Jesus wasn't a showbiz guy coming to protect his name. He came as a real man from a wicked genealogy, but he remained sinless. And from there, you no longer read about the sins of those people. You no longer read about the genealogy. You read something else now in the book, in the New Testament. Friends, Christmas, when Jesus came, Christmas is for people who are doing badly in life. Like we have read from this genealogy of Jesus Christ. There, was, there were moments of shame, but Christ came, and he was never ashamed of his people. 
Because he was coming to do something new, something great. So friends, when we hear that Christ is a prince of peace, shalom, and his peace, it means that his peace, his shalom, is wide enough to include everyone in there. And when he came, when he landed, he felt, and you know, people were able to experience this peace. Actually, one of the guys who is called Simeon in the book of Luke chapter 4, if you may go there just quickly, Luke chapter 4, now, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, sorry for that, verse 25. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the Lord required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. This was not just rest. Simeon knew that something else has happened in the cosmos. Something else has happened in the universe. Now the Prince of Peace is here with us. And so Christ comes to people who are badly off. And he comes and he gives them peace. When Jesus was you know, ascending to heaven, he told his disciples that my peace I live with you. My peace I give you. And I do not give you as the world does. Because he is the source and the prince of that shalom. We can never be able to experience the peace that we long for if we do not hide ourselves in Christ, if we do not understand that there is hope of peace during this moment of Christmas. This peace is wide enough to include everyone. This peace is, you know, is so much that it is able to last through all eternity. That God's peace is enough to reach even the worst of sinners. Whoever that you have read here, the catalog of all these guys, then the sins they committed, that Christ would still reach out to them. And when you read the book of Revelation, even chapter 7, you hear that the names of these tribes, the people who had done, you know, many wrongs, committed sins, murderers, and all that, that the names of the 12 tribes will be in heaven, not because of their own merit and their own righteousness, but because of the peace and the tranquility that Christ brought. How can something so far above us become a reality? It can only happen because God is able to do far beyond what we ask or even what we think. And Christ comes, even during this time of Christmas, he comes not to demand. He comes to give us something. He comes as a gift to us. And I remember, I, don't know, I think I don't know if I've ever shared here about one time when our, our daughter was born and we, uh, we had not paid our rent for just a couple of days and we had delayed. And, and, I mean, and, and our landlord will pass by our place and we'll you know, lock the door just as we try to sort out and navigate that season. And our landlord came on 6th, you know, he knocked on our door and we're not, we were not there. Okay, we were, not, we were inside, he was outside, so we were not there. <laughs> the confession of a pastor. And then after that, you know, he came back again and when he came the, the, the next time, you know, we had forgotten to lock the door and the door was half open. And when he just came and pushed the door and as I was coming, when my wife, Joanne, was trying to, uh, to you know, to, to bathe our child and so came and... I wondered who is that, and behold, our landlord was standing next to me face to face. 
and I didn't know what to say. And he shared, I have come here. I came here and you guys were not there. Yes, we were not there. <laughs> and he said, I wanted to tell you, you know, please do not pay your rent because that rent will become a gift to your child. You know, so do not pay rent. If you have paid, if you have paid, you know, don't pay next month because that's my gift to your baby. And I was, you know, I was very happy about that. And uh, soon after that, we uh, realized that we are respecting our second born um, and we awaited the gift. It didn't come the second time. He didn't say a word. Even to the time that we were leaving there, you know, we want to move, we want to move. You know, can you do something? And I, no, he kept quiet. But do you know that that's how we see Jesus Christ? We see when we are called to have a relationship with Christ, we see that Christ come to demand something, that Christ is a landlord who takes away from us. But no, that when we come to Christ, Christ doesn't demand something out of us, that there is, you know, we think that there is unrewarded cost in following Christ. The good news of Christmas, the things that we read from this genealogy is that Christ doesn't come with a demand, but Christ come to pay our bill, and that is the bill of redemption. That redemption is Christ coming to pay the bills that we couldn't afford ourselves. That he comes, you know, to meet the need that we ourselves could never, ever be able to meet. That in Christ we are forgiven. We have a new name. We have a new start. We have a new heart. No more repetition of these sins, the catalog of sins that we have just checked. In Christ that we are a new creation. In Christ we become a gift to the world. In Christ we become a gift to, to the church. In Christ we become a gift to, to our families. The song that we earlier sang in a holy night, it says, a thrill of hope to the weary world. And the weary world rejoices. Truly he has taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Do you see that again? His gospel is shalom. That Christ come into our messy world, into our messy families. But he gives us that peace, that shalom. The song again says that chains shall break for the slave is our brother. He, come to, he came to dwell with us and he can be able to relate with us. When we have this perspective, brothers and sisters, then we have a new meaning. We see the, a new meaning of Christmas, that yes, we can celebrate, we can be jovial, we can meet with our families, but let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that's how our faith should be anchored. And out of that then, we can be able to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. May the Lord bless you and keep you.